I invite you to go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word this morning to the Old Testament prophet of Isaiah. If you're using uh, the Bible in the rack in front of you, our text is on page uh, 567. Page 567 there in chapter 1 of Isaiah. As you're turning there, I want to say what a joy it is uh, to be here uh, with you. Uh, It's an honor, uh, it's a humbling honor to be invited to come and uh, bring the word and preach to you as a guest this morning. Uh, Like David said, we've known the Webbers uh, for almost uh, 20 years now. Uh, David really, he doesn't really like my preaching that much. He just wanted an excuse that we'd come and hang out with his family. Uh, And so you have to endure my sermon this morning. Uh, I'm so glad to be here and be with them. Uh, They seem to be thrilled here. Seems such a wonderful uh, place uh, to minister and your gift to them and I hope they are to you. Uh, We spoke last night uh, about their plans for a sabbatical this summer. Uh, Sounds wonderful. Uh, A a healthy church is a church where uh, pastors can take sabbaticals and everything's just fine. They'll be fine. You'll be fine. Uh, We took a sabbatical last summer uh, and loved uh, those three months away and came back uh, rejuvenated and energized, and I'm still feeling on the high from that uh, so many months ago. On our sabbatical, uh, not knowing exactly what to do with my time, uh, I read the prophet Isaiah over and over and over again. I took a class on Isaiah in seminary and left the class just as confused what the book's about as when I started. I was hoping maybe as a pastor I would understand what this long, confusing uh, prophet is about, and uh, I'm still learning. I hope I can help you just a little bit uh, this morning. Why are we looking at a prophet from thousands of years ago in a place on the other side of the globe to a people that don't really have all that much in common with us? How in the world could that be relevant to our lives today? I want you to see in this text a couple themes from the whole book of Isaiah. The first theme that jumps off the page is the holiness of God. The transcendent otherness of a just, righteous, pure creator, sustainer, and redeemer. That's always relevant to the people of God. But as we read Isaiah and we see the holiness of God, what jumps out next immediately to us is we look at ourselves and, man, I'm not even close to that. We see the unrighteousness of man. We see the lack of our own holiness. Isaiah can leave us wanting. The third theme of the book is how it points us to someone who can reconcile the pit that we're in and the heights where God is. That someone is the Messiah, the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. Always relevant to God's people. Would you follow along with me in your copy of God's Word, Isaiah 1 Verses 21 to 31. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, 
the mighty one of Israel. Aha, uh-huh. I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together. And those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired. And they shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers. And like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tender and his work a spark. And both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. Would you pray with me? Our God, how we tremble at your holiness. How we read of the mighty one of Israel, the Lord of hosts. Our hearts shake. We pray, O Lord, this morning in these few minutes that you would send your very spirit to bring to us the sharp conviction of sin. That you would bring to us the weight of our misdeeds. You would indeed in but a few minutes crush us. And with the same sharpness of conviction, you would follow up with the sweetness of the gospel of grace. We would see we are needy people standing before a holy God, and the only hope we have is provided by your Son and our Lord Jesus Christ. Press upon our hearts the joy and assurance of his gospel. Would we leave here not looking downward at our own sin, but looking upward? the glory of our resurrected and ascended Savior where our assurance lies. Show us Jesus and the hope we have for your servants are listening. In his name we pray. Amen. There's an old proverb that asks the question, how do you eat an elephant? Kind of a weird question, right? Some of you are laughing because you know the answer. The answer to how do you eat an elephant is one bite at a time. How do you accomplish this major task in front of you? Well, you just go about it one little bit at a time, one bite at a time. In Isaiah 1, we have a task. It's not my task, and it's not your task. It is a massive task before God. It's much grander, much bigger, much more daunting than eating an elephant. It is restoring a city on the brink of destruction. It is bringing a people back who have brought upon themselves the righteous judgment of God. And it seems impossible. How does God restore a city? We're going to see in Isaiah, one citizen at a time. One man at a time. One woman at a time. One child 
at a time. God goes about the restoring work of his people person by person. The way Isaiah shows us this at the end of chapter 1 is first he shows us what we might call the forest, and then he zooms in on all the individual trees. How does God relate to the people together? How does God relate to the city? Shows us how he will relate to each one of us individually as we go along. I want to show you first how God restores the city, verses 21 to 26, and then we're going to look at the individual people in the city. How does God restore the citizens? First point, God restores the city. Look how our text begins, how the faithful city. To the eyes of Isaiah, the heart of the prophet is set upon the city Jerusalem. Not just any old Jerusalem, Jerusalem in the 18th century, which is sort of the capital of, we have a divided kingdom, right? Israel in the north, Judah in the south, Jerusalem the capital in the south. And different prophets are sent to different places. Isaiah has been sent to the southern kingdom to bring a word of encouragement and rebuke and hope and judgment on a people of God who are waffling back and forth whether to trust God or to trust the nations around them. Isaiah focuses on the city itself, not modern Jerusalem, not really any old city today. We don't really read this and think of Lynchburg or Asheville or Washington, D.C. You see, in this era, God had addressed his people both as a nation and as a believing people together as the nation of Israel. So we rightly apply these verses to the church herself. We are the ones to whom the prophet speaks. And he brings a heavy word. He brings... A word we don't like to talk about at, around polite company, right? He uses that phrase, the city has become a whore, to illustrate the unfaithfulness of the people of God. Earlier in chapter 1, God speaks of himself as a parent and rebellious Israel as children. Now the unfaithfulness of Israel is signified as an unfaithful spouse. You see the word faithful, they are unfaithful. They are untrustworthy. They have left their God. He thinks here, as he looks around Jerusalem, at the past glory of the city. Maybe you've gone to a place that once was glorious and isn't anymore. Maybe you go to your hometown and you drive around and you think, I remember when that park used to be beautiful and I used to play there. and That abandoned building used to be where my mom worked, right? And, and you kind of can imagine the past glory of that place. Isaiah isn't looking around Jerusalem, lamenting the physical glory of the place, although it is destroyed. He's lamenting the character of the people of God. A covenant people that were once marked by the righteousness and the holiness and the justice of God. And now the prophet looks around God's people who are to be a light to the nations, who are to be a blessing to the nations. And what does he see? Injustice. Murderers. Thieves. People taking bribes. People running after gifts. Those who do not bring justice to orphans. Those who do not bring justice to widows. It's like silver that has been purified with the dross removed from it. The dross is all the bad stuff you don't want. The dross is taken out, and he's saying it's 
like the dross has taken over. Verse 22, the silver has become dross. The rich, pure stuff has become the stuff that nobody wants. Or a different illustration, the wine, the best wine, has been watered down, right? And we drove up here yesterday, we drove past all these wineries. You can imagine going in there and ordering their best glass of wine and taking this almost priceless glass of wine and just pouring it into a big jug of water. You can imagine everybody, kind of the waiters, kind of eyes getting big. What is going on, right? You've ruined the wine. You have essentially unwinded it. You have made it, you've taken its nature, and you've so perverted and reversed it, it's, it's no longer even really wine. It's just sort of pink-colored water. For the people of God, they're no longer marked by the righteousness of their God that sets them apart from the nations around them. They're now just watered down wine. They're now just silver that has become dross. They are a city perverted. And Isaiah, with the words of God, laments the fall of this city. How could this have happened? How could a people so marked by the name and righteousness of God fall in so far? It's a long story, but it begins with the idea of idolatry. They live as a people amongst a lot of other types of people and a lot of other religions, and they have over time started to renounce the one true God and worship the God of their neighbors. You think, how could anybody do this? Well, I wonder if you were ever tempted to worship the God of your neighbors. If you've ever tempted to look down the street, and what are they hoping in? What are your unbelieving friends trusting in? And you think, man, that would be really nice for me to trust in. That would bring me so much more hope, so much more joy, so much more security. And then all of a sudden you find yourself worshiping at the idol of your neighbors and your culture and forgetting your one true God. The word for that in the prophets is spiritual adultery. And as that happens, inevitably, the second step of of perversion will happen to the people of God from idolatry to injustice. Once they forsake the one right and true God, their lives will no longer be marked by righteousness and holiness. They will abandon the most needy among them. They won't care for the orphan. They won't care for the widow. They won't care for justice or righteousness. They have left their God. And now they have left the justice of their God in the world around them. When you forsake the worship of the true God, it is only a matter of time before your life shows forth that forsakenness as well. What is the result of this? How how is a holy God going to respond to the people he has called by his own name, who he has redeemed out of Egypt, who he has gifted a land and kings and a place? How is that God going to respond to the perversion of his people? Look at verse 24. Therefore the Lord declares, and if you're wondering who the Lord is, well, he is, the next verse, the Lord of hosts. Capital L-O-R-D, he is their covenant God. They are bound to him in the bonds of covenant relationship. That's why their spiritual idolatry is termed adultery. And in case you missed it, he's also the mighty one of Israel. If there's ever a God that you don't want to forsake, it's this God. And one would think as you read this, what is this God going to do? Well, he's going to be done with these people, right? I mean, that's what I would do. I'd be washing my hands of them and going to get somebody else. Go find somebody else that's got a speck of righteousness in them. 
But instead of annihilation, what we get out of this holy God is purification. Because he won't leave his people. He's not like you or me. We break our promises all the time. He is a faithful God to an unfaithful people. Isaiah should end halfway through verse 24. They're destroyed. End of the book, right? There's 65 more chapters because there's grace upon grace and mercy upon mercy to come. I want you to show you that the city that's perverted in verses 21 to 23 is the city that's purified, verses 24 to 26. That same silver that has become dross, verse 25, I will smelt away your dross as with lye. I will put you in the refiner's fire and all that is impure and all that is perverted and all that is unholy and all that is unrighteous and all that is sinful will be smelted, will be burned will be consumed and destroyed, and only what is pure will remain. What's going on here is a purging back to their original nature. It's hard to imagine that expensive cup of wine mixed with a jug of water and sort of getting the wine back, right? You can't quite imagine that. The image then is is of silver that has been so corrupted that is now in the refiner's fire. It's purified. It's perfected. It comes out spotless on the other side. Sounds beautiful, but the process is incredibly painful. For Israel, historically, the process will be God sends foreign nations to evade, invade and conquer and destroy them. It's not really a fun process by which God produces a purified people. But look what comes out, verse 26. I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. The biggest problems with Israel is their leaders fail. So what's God going to do? He's going to give them new leaders. He's going to give them better leaders. In fact, as Isaiah begins to culminate as we read through the book, it's not better leaders. It's a better leader. It's a Messiah that is to come. It's a promised holy and righteous one. Your leaders who generation after generation are marked by unrighteousness. I'm just going to send you the righteous leader. I'm going to send you one judge and one counselor and one king after the the, the promises of David, and he will be righteous among you. He will be the Messiah who will truly set you free. You see, they should all have been destroyed. We should all be destroyed. There's no hope in our own righteousness. There is no hope before a holy God that maybe I've just been good enough. (laughs) Maybe I'm just a little bit better than my neighbor and God will see that and he will count that. Maybe in the scales of his justice, I'll just do a couple more works and I'll reverse those scales and I'll be good. Now the, the, the hope for the sinful people in front of a holy God is only the promises of that same holy God. And that is that God will always have the people for himself. He's not going to trade us in for someone else. He's stuck with us, right? Because of his promises. Because he won't let us go. Because he is always faithful when we are faithless. Because this God will always have a people under heaven to worship him. Westminster Confession of Faith speaks of the church and addresses why sometimes the church looks a lot better than other times and looks pretty bad. The Confession of Faith says, The purest churches under heaven are subject both to mixture and to error. That's right here in Israel in the 8th century. 
And some have so denigrated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. Nevertheless, there shall always be a church on earth to worship God according to his will. There'll always be a people. We can look around, and we often do, and lament the state of the people of God. That's not new. (laughs) Christians from every generation have done that. The faithful ones in the 8th century are looking around Jerusalem and thinking, man, there's no hope for the church in the next generation. Because if we look around at our own righteousness, there is no hope. But if we look to the righteousness of God revealed to us in Jesus Christ, there we have eternal hope. Did you notice the last word of verse 26 is the same as the first name in verse 21? The faithful city, we go down into the pits in verses 22, 23, 24, 25, and the purging, then we come back up, and she is again called the faithful city because of what God does for his people, because God never leaves us or forsakes us, because God's fire of purity may burn, but it does not destroy us. And so while we lament the state of the church around us in every generation, we can also with confidence say that he will build his church at the gates of hell and they will not prevail against her. God will always have a people. He will always have a church because he is good and because he is faithful. Now do those promises apply to us as individuals? Well, for the answer to that, we've got to look at the second part of the text. We've looked at the forest. Now we've got to zoom in. Isaiah takes us real close, zooms in on the trees. It's as if after a hurricane, people go back to their neighborhood and sort through the rubble and think to themselves, nobody can survive this, right? I mean, is there anybody left? After this purging, consuming, fire comes through, who could be left out of all of this? We read in verses 27 and 28, there's these two groups. There's only two categories of people in Israel. Verse 27 are those who are redeemed. Verse 28 are those who are consumed. Look at those verses with me. Zion, just another name for Jerusalem and the city of God, the mountain of God, the people of God. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those inner who repent by righteousness. But Rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. So what's the mark of the righteous? The mark of the redeemed is their repentance. They're turning from the sin that so characterized them. If everybody has been first called a faithful city, born in perfect union uh, with God, and then in sin we have walked away and forsaken God. Only some people repent, turn from going astray, and come back. Those people marked by the grace of repentance, turning from the path of sin, with tears and grief and hatred, turning from sin that can seem so dear to us. They can seem so central to our identity, sin that we think we can't survive without. There's a renouncing, there's a turning back from sin to God. And repentance involves a turning to God and a new obedience. What's going on here is God is pressing upon the people such that he is the one who is repenting them. 
He is turning them back from their sin. The grace and mercy of God watches us run away from him and does not leave us. He sends conviction. He makes us feel guilty. He whispers the word of conviction through the Holy Spirit that we might turn and come back to him. Don't ignore those feelings of guilt. Don't ignore the tug of conviction. It is the Spirit of God turning you back to him. Because the other side, the other group, verses 28, I'm sorry, 29, 28 to 31, are those who are consumed. So if the redeemed are marked by repentance, what marks those who are consumed? It is those who forsake. You see that in verse 28. Those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. He uses this garden imagery. Imagery of choosing oaks. The imagery of turning to gardens. It seems like this is some form of idolatry. Maybe the fertility idols around them, sort of represented by nature that they've turned to. Sort of an oak and a garden, but it's not a good place to turn. Reminds me of the, the Christmas tree we just took down in our house. You may still have their Christmas tree up. Some of you are looking at your spouse. Yeah, that was your job, wasn't it? Take the Christmas tree down. <laughs> yeah, we watered our tree the day we put it up, and then we forgot about it. And you know what that's like. And all the presents are gone, and now it's just dry needles just sort of raining down on our floor. <laughs> that tree is a tinderbox. <laughs> that's what the gardens and the oaks are for the idolatrous people. Verse 31, they, the strong shall become tender, and his work a spark. Both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. When the consuming fire of the holy and righteous God blows through a dry and tender people, there's nothing to stop the fire. He will smelt away the dross, and he will consume the oak and the trees and the garden. So how in the world can a sinner survive this? Who could survive this? You see, repentance itself is not the thing that helps us to survive. Just saying we're sorry for sin leaves us just as dry. What God does is he sends someone to take that sin for us. Repentance, at its root, is asking God to not count my sin against me, but count it against somebody else. Don't blame me for my sin, Lord. Blame Jesus. Blame the righteous one. When you think about it, who's the only one who was never marked with dross? Who was the only perfect one to ever walk this earth? Who was the only one that was pure silver in his character? in his motivations, in his love for a lost world. And yet on his head is the consuming fire of a righteous God. Repentance doesn't make sin disappear. Repentance just puts sin on the cross of Jesus and he pays the price. And he wipes it away. And he makes us you see, the refiner's fire that blows through the city of Jerusalem, the way that God relates to that 
rebellious city who forsakes him is the same way he purges you and me. That same fire blows through us. And the way to survive is repentance. God repents us as a city. He repents us as individuals. What does that look like? Some of you know the the, most of you probably know the C.S. Lewis children's series, The Chronicles of Narnia. You know The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. There's other books in the series. Maybe you know The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And it's these other children from the real world. They come and they go and they, uh, they're on this boat that sails through these islands in the fictional world of Narnia. And the islands, they have all these mystical and magical adventures as they go. And there's this boy, this kind of main character. He's named Eustace Scrub. Uh, and Lewis says it's a name he almost deserved. He's so bad. <laughs> and he goes along his way. And one of these islands, he discovers a dragon's lair, a cave. And there's gold in the cave. And he shows his greed. And he goes after the gold. And he puts on this gold bracelet on his arm. And lo and behold, he turns into a dragon. At first, he thinks it's kind of cool. right? He could get vengeance on his friends who make fun of him. But then, pretty soon, he realizes he doesn't want to be a dragon. He wants to be a boy. But he doesn't know how. The greed that marks him, that forms him into the dragon, he he cries over it, but he doesn't know how to get rid of it. And then one day when he's at the depths of despair, the lion comes, Aslan. In C.S. Lewis's universe, right, he represents God. And the lion comes and tells the boy dragon, you have to undress, take it off. How am I going to undress my skin? And then he realizes he's talking about like a snake, right? A snake would shed its skin. And so he kind of scratches and he, he drops his skin. He steps out. He thinks, I'm a boy. And he looks down and he's still a dragon. He says, oh, I just got to do it again. I got to try harder. And so he tries to change himself and he takes off a suit. And he drops it. He steps out and he's still a dragon. He tries again and he can't do anything. And with forlorn eyes, he looks at Aslan and Aslan says, I must undress you. And with the swipe of the mighty claw of the lion, he cuts into the boy's flesh as deep, he says, as his heart. It's as if he is cutting down to the very center of his being, and yet in that moment of deep pain, he feels free. Because Aslan, only by his power, sets the boy free from the sin that he so desired and so characterizes his identity, and it drops away, and he steps out as a boy. He's pink and pure, says C.S. Lewis. He's free. You see, we can't change ourselves, can we? It's only two weeks into the new year, and I know you've already failed your New Year's resolutions. We can't change ourselves. God must change us. God must repent us. God must turn us back from sin by a vision of his holiness and by the grace and purifying power of Jesus. Make us whole again. Today, repent of your sin all the way down to your heart if you have to. Repent of your sin and trust in Jesus, the righteous one. And this city, this faithful city, it will be yours both now and forevermore. Amen. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we are a...
proud and stiff-necked people. And we swear we can do it by ourselves. I pray you would break us of that, even this very morning, of our own self-dependence, of our own self-righteousness. You would show us that in light of your pure holiness, we are nothing but dross. But with the same hand that you slay us, you build us back up because you show us Christ who took all of that dross that we might be counted and reckoned as silver. Lord, purify us through the grace of repentance. Set our minds today not downcast on the sins of our flesh, but upward in joy and hope and rejoicing and worship for what your Son and our Lord has done for us on the cross. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.